Welcome to the Sharing Fitzmaurice podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Meg Van Dusen. She's based in Seattle, Washington. She enjoys the outdoors, cooking in time with her husband, Eric, and her sons, Keenan and Julian. Meg is a licensed clinical psychologist and mindfulness practitioner in private practice since 1994. In a time of great stress and disconnection, she offers insights and solutions to help her readers reconnect and live healthier lives in her new book, Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. So, Meg, you're absolutely very welcome to my podcast here today. And just in your introduction, we talked um, about your book, Stressed in the U.S., and I think your book relates to every country in the world, and um, particularly at the moment, but in all the subject matter that you cover in your book, it is something that will resonate with every single human being, I think, over all of the years. Your book has been described as holistic and gives us an overview of the stresses and challenges we all face. And it's filled with compelling stories, practical solutions, offering practices that can heal and transform our lives. And I absolutely agree with that. Um, as I was reading through it, you know, and there's a few things I'll ask you about, but I loved it. I love the practical tools that you give to people because I believe we can talk, you know, the big talk and we can give them all the reasons why they're like that and why they're stressed and what they should do. But it's the practical tools that are going to help people understand what changes they can create in their own lives on a daily basis. Right, yes, thank you so much for having me, Sharon. I appreciate that, um, you know, uh, comment about what you found helpful. Uh, I think that it's true that the book can apply to people all over the world. Um, I wrote it specifically about the US only because I live here and we have sort of this, um, very unique situation, as you know, with our administration these last four mm -hmm. years that have greatly affected people. But everything that I discuss in the book is really applicable to just what it's like as a human being to be overwhelmed, you know, in 2020, 2021, uh, what it's like and what we can do about it. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is that it's not just, you know, how do I get more done? How do I organize myself better? Um, how do I just say no to obligations? And those things are helpful, but it really depends on our resilience to stress. And that's something that actually gets either a good start or a bad start depending on what our early interactions are with our caregivers. So it's something called secure attachment that I talk about. So I just really felt that, you know, people, well, we as psychologists talk about attachment theory all the time. Um, the majority of people actually don't understand how important it is to our well-being. And so I just felt that it was important to write this book from that perspective so people could understand not just what do I do about all these stressors, but how do I increase my resilience? Uh, how do I actually, you know, truly feel better rather than just try to put out fires? 
Mm, absolutely. I love that. And I love the fact that you explain secure attachment, you know, because I think a lot of people don't understand that or they think because they may not have had that secure attachment in early years that they're unable to form secure attachments later on as adults in themselves, when I believe they absolutely can, but sometimes they need to know how or to be given a little bit of guidance and support along the way. As your book starts off, Meg, you started off very powerfully with the 9-11 attacks in America and how your sense of safety was greatly compromised and it created a national shift in everyone's secure attachment. I think that it actually was a global shift in our secure attachment because the US is one of these huge countries, this great power that we've all seen and heard about, it's always on the news. And we rely so much, I suppose, on what's happening in America. There's a great connection between Ireland and America, you know, over the generations. Yes. So, yes, we would have a very strong connection with the States. And still our young people are going over there on J-1 visas, you know, and they have some have relations there from like 50 or 60 years ago and going back even longer. So it really shook the world. And if you ask anybody, as I'm sure you know and described in your book where you were, I was pregnant with my second child and I had just started maternity leave. And I remember my husband ringing me. I didn't have a mobile phone at the time. I remember him ringing me on the house phone and saying, turn on the news quick, a plane has crashed into some tower in America. And it was like watching you know, a movie. I couldn't believe it was real. And this was happening in another country, but it seemed to just shock the world so much. Why do you think that is, Meg? Well, I think that uh, the United States has been in many ways idealized because, you know, we have such a large country, we have a democracy here, uh, and we have never had terrorist attacks on our own soil. That is just not something that happens here or happened here. Um, it's considered, you know, a place that's relatively safe. It's considered a place that, um, you know, people can come travel to and explore and feel, uh, at least this used to be the case, you know, feel um, safe and secure here. Um, so when this occurred, it really demonstrated uh, that we are not immune um, to some of you know, the atrocities that happen in this world. Um, I think here in the US, uh, you know, the thing that was most obvious is that as people are jet setting around, everything shut down. There were no planes, nothing was happening, nobody could move. There were people stuck across the country that needed to rent cars and drive home eventually because we didn't know how long this was going to go on. And it did change airline travel forever. Um, and you could feel it when you, you know, when you would go to the airport months after 9-11 to get on a plane to go somewhere. Um, it felt as if we no longer were living in the United States. We were, you know, having to be thoroughly um, 
screened and uh, we were not allowed to do all of the usual things that we could do, such as bring our bottle of water with us or whatever it was. And these little tiny things might seem small, but they're jarring when you recognize that this isn't normal life anymore, kind of like the pandemic, you know, mm -hmm. you realize what this is not normal. And so it really gave people here um, a profound sense of insecurity anti-anxiety medication, anti-depressant medication um, skyrocketed after 9-11. People were being diagnosed with PTSD just from watching it on television. Um, so it did have a profound effect. And I really appreciate your comment about um, how it has affected the rest of the world. Because here in the US, we can sometimes become a little narcissistic, mm. right? And we can be in our bubble and think it's all about us, but it's not. Um, and these things, we are a model in some way for other countries. And so it greatly affects uh, other nations around the world, just like this recent insurgence um, uh, to our capital. So it was a significant event. And to me, it seemed like the start of what felt like a series of events, as well as cultural shifts that began occurring rapidly um, in the following two decades. Yeah. Um, all of that, you know, as you're speaking, you know, other thoughts are going through my mind around that time. And as you said in your book, lots of other things started coming up for you, even in your own personal life, don't mind culturally and everything. And here we are now with the pandemic, like you talked about global warming, you know, the recession where you and your husband faced, you know, financial unease. Um, Donald Trump was elected, you know, that smartphones and Facebook, everything was created and we became more vulnerable. And here we are, as you said, now in this global pandemic and that it has rocked the foundation of everybody's daily lives. Don't mind the economy, you know, the healthcare systems, all of that. Were we too, how would I say it, were we too cozy Meg, were we wrapped up, as you said, in our little bubbles, in our own little secure patch, and we didn't really have to think about the outside world until it became global. For me, that's what 9-11 did. It brought me outside of my country, even though I traveled to other countries and I was aware, you know, of current affairs, but it really made me kind of broaden my horizon, broaden my mind as to, you know what, there's things going on outside that I should care about, that I should be taking notice, that I should speak up about, and not just what's on my doorstep. And it's not that I want to be involved in everything, but that we all have a duty, I think, worldwide, globally, to our fellow man, fellow woman. And this really made people stand up and become aware. So when I think about secure attachment, sometimes I kind of go, well, maybe we're just secure in our own attachment to what we know. And anything outside of that rocks our boat. Right. I'm glad that you brought that up. I mean, we've seen that in spades here with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I think in the U.S. we can get, um, like I said before, sort of um, blind because we're in our 
you know, bubble and we um, aren't considering other people. There's a, there's a bit of grandiosity here. Mm. Um, it's just a fact. Uh, and so when things happen that we think only happen in other countries, such as the recent insurrection or 9-11, um, you know, or the police violence uh, against um, Black people here, which has just been, it's always been going on. It's mm. just that we have video now. Um, you know, it, but it's really been horrific to watch. Um, yeah, it, it makes a person, ideally, it, it, it would make a person kind of want to wake up, um, poke their head out and say, there are terrible things happening to my fellow human that I want to do something about. And I think when people don't do that, that's when they can feel anxious or depressed um, because they feel helpless and they feel hopeless. Um, but I think one of the things that we have learned here in the US is that uh, there are things you can do. There are many things you can do and it makes a difference. In fact, it makes a difference in your own personal well-being. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that really stood out for me as well was, you know, you wrote the biggest hope for our future is community building groups, whether this is just here locally in your area or within your country or globally, because, you know, we talk about technology and we see the negatives and we'll talk about that in a moment, but also the positives of it. And I'd be very much um promoting the positive side of technology and how we use it and the right way to use it and that we can build a community globally with the right people not just with random followers and likes you know and all of that but with the right people we can form beautiful networks where we can I suppose have that positive influence on other people that there is a support like we have support networks in our areas with our colleagues you know in our small local groups and you spoke about some of them that are happening there with the men's sheds you know young people connecting with the senior citizens and learning from them you know there is so much you give so many great examples in the book you know that I, as a person myself, would try and promote as much as possible, even within my own area or wherever I could. Social media has made us all more vulnerable. We are constantly on and there's no boundaries. I think for me, again, when I read that, it struck me and I thought really when I became more aware was also when I became more connected globally so it had a negative and a positive effect. So I wanted to see more of what was going on in the world. So the way I did that was through Google, through YouTube, because we have the videos. Then later on, it was through Instagram or Facebook. So because I wanted to learn more and see more, I connected via social media. So it had the positive for me of learning and understanding what other people in other cultures and countries were experiencing. But it also meant I was spending more time connected virtually on the screen. Right. Yeah, I think the, the one thing to for listeners to understand about secure attachment is that it's a psychological bond that forms traditionally between two people over time. But we can also have secure or insecure attachments to our nations or to groups of people. Um, and what I mean by secure attachment is that we feel seen, 
we feel understood, we feel safe in the company of that person or that group or that nation. Mm -hmm. There are a host of different kinds of insecure attachments. Um, and I talk about those in the book. Um, but one of the things, unfortunately, and you're right, it's an absolutely complicated uh, phenomenon to be to have to navigate social media and technology and still look out for yourself. There are absolutely aspects of it that are connecting you and I would not be able mm. to be doing this right now, right, without it. And the fact that I can see you is yes. just so <laughs> um, much more meaningful, right? Yes, yes. Um, but the, the problem is, you know, the millennial generation and particularly the Z gens, which it sounds like are your kids and my kids, mm. um, you know, have never grown up without it. And it came too fast and we didn't know how to regulate it. And we're, parents are still grappling with this. And as parents, we often end up blaming the kid for being on the device too much or, you know, for logging on to some site that they, you know, shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, it's not their fault. We put these things in their hands and, and technology and social media are having more of an adverse effect on these kids than a positive effect on these kids. Um, there are numerous studies out now that show that the more time you spend on social media, and this is a kid's favorite pastime, the more depressed you are, the more suicidal you are, in fact. Um, the more platforms you're on, the more depressed you are. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety happening, you know, here in the U.S. among our teens. More than 30% of them have bona fide anxiety disorders, not to mention the rest who are just experiencing symptoms of anxiety. And I do, you know, so many of the studies, and it's also my experience with my private practice and my own children, is that it does seem to come back to the fact that, you know, we've lost our way a bit. Um, you're absolutely right in that we can be connected to so many more people and we have this ability to be able to step into their shoes, hear what it's like for you living in Ireland, what it's like for me here living in the US, being able to talk about it live is, is connecting, it's helpful. But at the same time, I think the, the thing that is truly frightening is that especially the smartphone, is a device that is incredibly addictive. Mm -hmm. And it's keeping kids from actually having in-person contact with each other in a meaningful way. It's making them uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen, and this is before the pandemic, the fact that, you know, teenagers and young adults are having sex less. Well, a lot of parents might say, yay, that's great. <laughs> um, you know, and in some ways, yes, I suppose you could look at it that way. But really, when you delve into the research, what you find, what that means is it's because they're getting together less. Yes. Um, and where are they? Cloistered in their bedrooms behind a screen. And it is, it is causing, you know, um, pervasive depression and anxiety among that in that generation um, in the recent survey on stress in America uh, the Z generation was by far the most stressed 
uh, and you know, the millennials have been deemed the most stressed by tech out of any other generation. So it's, it is something that we have to be mindful about. We have to be extremely conscientious about, and we have to learn how to treat technology as potential addiction, how to navigate that. So, because it's not going away, it's not like you can just avoid the bar so you don't have a drink. Uh, it's a different, it's a whole different ball game here. And so we have to find ways to navigate it and to use it for the better good and to teach our kids about that. And I, I honestly think um, it's less about put the smartphone down and put it away, although I do talk about that in the book. Yeah. It's more about getting kids and ourselves to engage in life um, more naturally, get out in nature, get together with people. I know I'm saying this during a pandemic when we can't, mm. but ideally, uh, you know, so that we don't lose our connections with each other. Um, just that eye contact, and it doesn't happen through a screen um, with, you know, another person is, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, as babies, it's really what grows our brains. It's so key to our well-being. Mm. Absolutely, Meg. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I love, you know, that when you talk about that secure attachment, and I think for many people, they understand, they might not understand the terminology, you know, but when you talk about it and say, you know, that early connection between um, parent or caregiver with their baby, and you said in the book how you can see a lot of you know, not all young moms, but there are some young moms that they're breastfeeding the baby and the other hand is going at the phone or taking a selfie of themselves and their new baby. And the little baby is looking up for that contact with the mom, but she's busy, you know. And again, as you said, there is a part, there is a generation that did grow up with it. Um, I see with my own kids now 19 and nearly 21 they didn't have mobile phones until they were teenagers, you know, they were going into secondary school. And again, as parents, we didn't know that much about them. We only knew that they could contact their parents or we could contact them in an emergency because, again, we've become so overprotective. It's a little bit like you said in the book, are we over coddling them, you know? And I think we have become overprotective of our children. We, it's us as adults, we have this fear of letting our children out of our sight and that we need to know where they are at all times. I think we as parents have done that damage to our children. And I question myself and say, when did that exactly happen? When did we become so overprotective? Whereas when I was a child, we ran through the fields and you know, we were living in the country. And we went through the fields and we were gone for hours playing with our friends and we only came home when we were hungry. Where did it change for well, people? I think, you know, um, I think that's really only a piece of why the Z-Gens are so stressed and, and anxious and depressed. I actually think the, the overprotectiveness is, is, is maybe a smaller piece of it. Mm. And what's going on in the world is a yeah. bigger piece. Um, but that said, I, I mean, news media, first of all, here in the U.S., I can only speak to what's been happening here. Um, we have a lot of gun violence, as you know. Mm. Uh, you know, kids um, are 
victims of sexual abuse um, more than I even can wrap my brain around. Mm -hmm. um, and so with news media and education about that, I think parents became increasingly worried. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that there was so much pressure around academia here because it was getting increasingly more difficult to afford an education, to get an education. I'm talking about a college education. Uh, and so you had to do, you know, zillions of activities so you can get that scholarship or even get in mm. um, as it was becoming so competitive. And so parents just really, I think, got caught up in both, you know, the fear of something happening physically to their child, given everything that, um, you know, the news was presenting us with, uh, as well as the worry about their future um, economically and tying it to needing to be in you know a good university or having to get that scholarship uh, and yeah it was overboard is overboard and I'm sure that it has contributed to why kids are anxious um, they've felt that I mean I for sure know that my kids um, have felt that um, we've talked about it uh, you know, this sense of, oh my God, you know, am I going to be okay out there? And is one extracurricular activity just not enough? I have to do three more. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really insane. Um, so I can't say for sure exactly when it happened, but I do think that, you know, we started hearing about this with the millennials. Um, unfortunately, I think people inaccurately have stereotyped millennials as lazy mm. um as um people who you know just want to live at home with mom and dad and don't seem to have ambition and i just think that couldn't be farther from the truth um you know i don't see that i do think that they came out into the workforce here in the u.s during you know one of the worst recessions since the great depression i think the world was upside down for them uh, and, uh, and they were grappling with, you know, tech. I mean, it is true. They are the most stressed generation in that. So in terms of what do we do about that? I, again, I talk a lot about mindfulness in the book because we can't do anything if we're not paying attention. <laughs> and um, mindfulness gets you to pay attention in the present moment to really slow down and be keenly aware of your interaction, in this case with your child. And why is it that you're shouting at them or telling them they can't do this or can't do that? You know, why not just establish a plan if they wanna go somewhere and you're too afraid that they're gonna get shot? You know, if they wanna go somewhere, establish a plan, establish a, a reasonable, sort of safety plan that's not overly paranoid, um, that allows your teenager to be able to be out in the world exploring their independence as is developmentally necessary and um, still have you know, some sense of their ability to know what to do in a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And, you know, when I say, you know, as a parent, and I speak from my own experience always, 
not for the general public of Ireland, in case they're all listening, saying, that wasn't me, Sharon. <laughs> but from my own experience, and I talk about it with my own groups and whenever I'm giving any talks, and I'll say in my experience with my first child, I was overcautious and I was overprotective because, again, a new mom did not know what to do with this new baby. I did my best. And as he grew older, and he started going out into the world. I learned through him learning. I always say that they're always my greatest teachers, my children, because Absolutely. they taught me what the next step would be and when I needed to step back and when I needed to let them go another step and another step further. And I always remember that, um, you know, because of the mobile phones, I used to say to my eldest, because he loved going out, and I'd say, when you get there, text me. And he always did. And I'd say, when you're leaving, text me. When you're in the taxi, text me. I said, I need a timeline. <laughs> so I know if you're not home in 30 minutes, something is wrong and we'll go and collect you. So we established that and it worked quite well. Come along to my second child. Text me when you get there. Two hours later, where are you? Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> I forgot. Yes. Exactly. So again, they were teaching me all the time. You are not the first thing they are thinking about, you know. And absolutely. You're probably yeah, the last. The last, absolutely. And I'll say, and it's just as well because then they're enjoying themselves and they're really connecting with their friends and whatever they're doing. So mm -hmm. that was a good thing in a way. Mm -hmm. But it also taught me that it was a lot of my own fears and doubts about them going out into the world right now, the world that, as you said, we hear about in media and social media. And that I needed to trust and believe that they were safe and they would make the right choices with the guidance that I had given them and their dad had given them over the years. And that they had a strong foundation, you know, to know how to handle a crisis if it happened, you know, not a huge big one, but a little one, maybe not getting a taxi home or running out of cash or, you know, having a, a fight with their friend, an argument and not knowing how to deal with that. And they're out on their own with other friends, all of these things that happen. And I have been very grateful and blessed by both of them, really. They've come through huge things for their ages and they have taught me so much, Meg, you know, that I have learned from them. And even today, I was discussing with my youngest, who's 19, and I said, I'm actually going to talk to a lovely lady. I said, she's a psychologist and an author, and she's from the US. And I was telling Scott about what was in your book, you know, and about secure attachment. And it was something that we had discussed before. And I spoke about, you know, social media and phones and addictions. And he smiled up at me and he said, have you seen me with my phone all day? <laughs> and I went no I haven't actually he said yeah but if I he said if I had the phone with me all day you'd say drop that phone put that phone away but he said you never noticed when I didn't have it and mm -hmm. that made me very aware as well mm -hmm. Meg how we're mm -hmm. quick to judge and quick to criticize mm -hmm. but we don't maybe don't observe when they're doing something that you've asked them to do a hundred million times before that that's so true. And, you know, I do want to say parents are overwhelmed. Um, you know, here in the US, the middle class is shrinking, it's practically shrunk. And so it is difficult to make ends meet, in, especially in an urban environment. Um, you have to have two people working in the household or a couple of jobs. Uh, and so, you know, parents are stretched thin. And unfortunately, that is contributing to kind of 
to being overreactive versus responsive. And so that is a prime example, right? Of what we do. We, we can see out of the corner of our eye, they're on the phone, get off the phone, right? <laughs> um, but if they're sitting over there just playing with the dog, that's not necessarily something we're noticing. Okay, that's fine. That's good. I don't need to comment on it. Uh, and so what they're getting is negative feedback a lot. Uh, and so it's really important that we slow ourselves down, that we slow down and that we engage. You know, I, I can just assume sometimes wrong in a wrong way that, you know, my younger son who's 16 wouldn't want to, you know, play a board game with me or a game of chess or something like that. Um, and if I assume that and I never ask, I'm missing out on tremendous opportunity because the fact is he says, sure. And that's not every kid. Yeah. Um, but, you know, recently when that occurred, I thought of all the times I didn't ask. Yeah. And it's because kids don't want to be on their phones all the time. It's not enjoyable for them. Of course, they want to play a game of chess or go out and, you know, play catch or yeah. shoot some hoop or, you know, do things that are out in the world. They would much prefer that. But there is now sort of a social norm in which it's expected that you're connected and that you're commenting on your friend's post or you're you know, involved in some Snapchat group. And you know, if you're not, then you feel like you're maybe missing out. And so there's a way in which it's just become kind of a ball and chain for them as well. And that's the thing I think we need to understand as parents and maybe focus less on it and more on uh, how do we want to spend time with them? What else, you know, what would be fun for them? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's right. And again, as I said, that really stood out for me today with my youngest son. And I know my elder son, he loves the gym and he loves exercise. So he would spend, you know, and a lot of time when he could, he can't at the moment. So he listens to a lot of podcasts, you know, which is really good. Some of them, of course, I wouldn't be interested in. We had a little discussion yesterday about a podcast I should listen to that was three hours long. And the topic was, you know, a scientist speaking about the good uses of drug taking. <laughs> and of course, Great. That, yes, that went on to be a different discussion. And but again, we were having a discussion and he was telling us about something he was interested in and it became this conversation. So we were involved and we were connected. And again, even today, as I was talking to my youngest son, he just thought in his head he fancied pancakes. So he said, I'm just going to make pancakes out of the blue. It didn't matter what time it was. You know, I could hear other mothers saying, you can't have pancakes. Your dinner will be ready soon. I just said, yes, let's have pancakes. And as he was cooking them, I sat at the worktop chatting with him about everything. And then we yeah. ate our pancakes together. And Aww. again, I valued that time. Yeah. Whatever it was, whatever it is just value the time that they will connect with you. Because as you said, their natural development is to pull away now and to do their own things, but right. they're not even getting that now because they're disconnected from what they would normally doing That's in the right. outside world. And they're forced into the screens, which they don't really want to do all of the time either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So Meg, um, one of the things there was alleviating loneliness as well. And in your book, you talk about the do's and don'ts. 
And again, how the younger generation and the older generation are probably the loneliest of all of the age groups around. And people would say, well, how could young people be lonely when they're connected on their phone? But we've just discussed it in the way that they are so disconnected and it's nearly like they're looking for approval. There was one line you said there it was motivated by money, fame and external achievement, which I see on some of the social media platforms, you know, they're influencers or right. talkers. And, you know, my kids will say to me, look at this guy has 10 million followers and he's a millionaire and he's only 16, you right. know. And I'd say to him, would you like to be that person? And they'd go, no, because he spends all his time trying to create funny videos so that he can keep his followers so he can make that money. And to them, that seemed really stressful. But to the guy that's making the 10 million, maybe he's quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we do have a loneliness epidemic. Um, it, you know, one of the recent studies here in the U.S. out of UC San Diego actually found that 75% of us living here are lonely. Mm -hmm. It was an astonishing percentage. And I think that's probably increased during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely know that even though I live you know, with my husband and my 16 year old and my older son is periodically home from college, um, a little more so given the pandemic, mm. that even with three other people in the house, I have definitely felt lonelier during this pandemic. Even the fact that I have reconnected with some of my college friends and we have these you know, Zoom gatherings that we would never have probably had if the mm. pandemic hadn't happened, right? Those are silver linings. Even with that, I'm feeling a sense of loneliness. And I think the loneliness here goes very, very deep. I think it's a culmination of all of the things that I've been talking about in the book, the um, events and cultural phenomenon that have been shaping us here in the US and yes, probably around the world. I know that I know in the UK, the loneliness um, you know, statistic is quite high as well. Uh, but you know, it is a sense of not feeling seen and understood. Um, there's a sense of it, it, it's it's one thing to be able to, you know see what somebody's posting on social media, finding that it resonates with you, uh, feeling a little lift by that. Maybe it's a quote, maybe it's something somebody shared about a, a story, feeling a little lift by that, but that can fade. What, what, what is not happening here is we're not having positive, loving relationships to ourselves. Mm. Um, people are extremely critical of themselves. There's a lot of comparison. And again, unfortunately, social media does um, play into that. Mm. Uh, but there's also a lot of comparison because this is, you know, a competitive uh, culture here. Um, one in which we feel like we have to acquire things in order to be valuable ourselves. And so, so many people in my practice feel as if they're falling short. Uh, if they don't have the big fancy house, if they don't have, you know, um, the, the, the spouse and the two and a half kids and the whatnot, they feel as if they're falling short. Mm. 
And there's an enormous amount of self-criticism that goes on, which then just perpetuates the loneliness. There was, uh, you know, one study done out of the University of Chicago that pointed to out of all of the variables that they measured as to what alleviates loneliness the most, they found that it was the way in which people spoke to themselves, um, more so than whether they were socializing with other people. Yeah. Um, so I think what's important to understand, going back to secure attachment, because I talk about it with mm -hmm. regard to feeling secure, insecure in your nation, feeling insecure or secure in your primary relationship, and feeling secure, insecure within the self too, is that we can change, we can change insecure attachment, as you mentioned before, nothing is set in stone here just by practicing mindfulness meditation, for example. And that actually can help us feel more confident, feel less lonely. And then from there, have behavior that is pro-social, that is empathic, and that actually creates external secure attachment. Yes, absolutely beautiful. And I practice, I have practiced mindfulness, mindfulness, you know, and I speak very openly about it to everyone. Um, mindfulness was what helped me get through a time in my life when I was quite suicidal. It wasn't called mindfulness. It was just, for me, it wasn't a term I was even aware of years ago. It was me just trying to be present, trying to stay. And you talked about the self-talk. I tried to say to myself, you can get through this minute, this hour, this day. And I, re I really became aware of the narrative in my mind, how it had just seemed to go mad for years and years. I wasn't aware of it. It's just all of these thoughts and feelings were all jammed in together and I behaved as if they were all true. And it was bringing up my fears and doubts and all of those things. So what I was really offering myself was self-compassion. And you mentioned that in your book. And I think a lot of people don't offer themselves compassion. As you said, when they see something on the news and we've just had a report published here on the mother and baby homes, you know, the atrocities that took place with the Catholic Church. Mm. And you know what? It's, it's, it's very hard because the survivors mm. are still alive, a lot of them, and they've mm. never had a, a real apology. And they're only finding out that what their records now of maybe their mothers or their aunties or grannies or whoever are brothers and sisters, you know, so it's heart wrenching. Mm. And we have great compassion, you know, for those people, for the survivors and for their moms that were lost. And then people have judgment and hate towards the institutions that house them, you know, and we're labeling them all under the same thing, the same way we might label all 9-11 attackers you know as I said everybody is an individual and a lot of people have been coerced into things even within institutions and within terrorist groups and but we always offer the victims compassion but we don't ever turn around and offer ourselves compassion because we think well I haven't been through an atrocity like a 9-11 attack I haven't been a survivor of a mother and baby institute you know, I'm just a person in my home with all these lovely comforts. As you said, we're blessed with warm homes and food. And yes, you know, we're feeling the loneliness, but you nearly feel guilty for offering yourself kindness and compassion. Do you find that with clients or people you know, Meg? All the time. 
all the time. Everything that you just said is what I hear um, on a weekly basis. Um, people saying, you know, I'm sure somebody else could use my spot more than I'm taking up time. I'm sure you're bored with just hearing the same old thing again. Um, really assuming that just because they haven't had an atrocity um, happen to them, that their pain is somehow irrelevant. Mm. Um, it's, it, it's, it's excruciating. Uh, I think, you know, a point that I want to make about this, though, is that people are also afraid that if they're self-compassionate, that they're going to become selfish. Mm. And this is where this whole thing of coddling comes in. Because I do think in there being raised awareness um, uh, about child development um, when the millennials, you know, first came on the scene and, and the subsequent generations, that, you know, parents may have misunderstood it, that they may have felt that it was pleasing the child, being sweet and kind to the child, not yelling at the child. But compassion has boundaries. It is not condoning. And there is a huge difference between saying the child screaming and saying, I want to see the pork 30 more minutes. And the parent saying, okay, honey, okay, 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 okay. Um, that is condoning. That's not going to help the child. Um, that's coddling. Uh, but compassion is, I know it's so disappointing that we have to go because you were just met this new friend. We're going to come back tomorrow and we're going. And maybe the child's kicking and screaming and you have to take the child kicking and screaming out of the park, but that's what you do. So compassion has boundaries. It's not, it's not just condoning everything. It's not letting your, if it's self-compassion, it's not letting yourself off the hook. Um, it's, it's being, if you've made a terrible mistake and you feel terrible about it, it's being compassionate that you're suffering in that way. But it also is about helping you look at what you did so that seeing if you can course correct it somehow, seeing if there is some way that you can um, repair what happened as opposed to, oh, you know, you're suffering, you feel so guilty and you shouldn't feel guilty about anything. It's really okay. That's a different story. That's not compassion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where you were talking there, you know, an example about um, kids and mothers or fathers setting boundaries. An example that stood out to me was Alex, 11 year old boy that was addicted to his PlayStation. And, you know, I smiled because I'm a mother and we've all had these little arguments with our kids saying one more hour and that's it. It's only on a Friday, chores first, homework first. It's only on the weekend. You must do this, this and this before you get it. And it's a treat or a reward. And then they're going, I'm in the middle of a game. I can't yeah, leave course, now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I love that example and how it affected his brain. So it wasn't just that he was addicted to it and wanted to stay playing. It was actually how it was affecting his brain. And when his parents um, took it from him and they had to take it from him, he went on or he had the opportunity to go on a six week outdoor camp and it changed him. He was a changed child coming back because it actually changed his brain and I love that because I think, again, we think it's just the game. They're, they're stuck on it, you know, but what it's actually doing to their brain, Meg, as they continue to just stay focused. And it's this kind of, it, to me, it feels like their whole body and energy is shaking constantly when they are playing these games. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's raising cortisol. Yeah. Uh, you know, even the ring ding ping of the smartphone sets off the stress response. Uh, even when the smartphone is lying by itself on a table um, and it's in the room within visual distance, cortisol levels are higher among those people that can see that smartphone in the room than people who don't. Mm. And so it is highly impactful. It really is a stressful device. With the games, oh my gosh, they are, um, you know, the combat games, for example. Uh, you know, my son will say absolutely he's stressed, but in a fun way. They perceive yeah. it as a fun way. <laughs> Um, the thing that's most disturbing, and I do think that, you know, we're going to be finding out more and more, the National, National Institute of Health here has been doing a long-term study with um, MRIs and kids over time uh, and looking at their brains. And they have already, the pre preliminary results, have already seen changes in the gray matter in the brain um, as a result of using... Uh, devices for five hours a day. I mean, most kids are on their devices five hours a day. That is a fact. And so I don't know where we're headed with this. Um, it's the problem, you know, I talk about it in the book, you know, likening it to smoking or whatever. You know, we get excited about things that we invent before we can see the dark side and then it comes on down the line and then we have to really start back paddling and unraveling. And so the fact that uh, Alex's mother experienced him um, as so calm and grounded after that six week camp is not astonishing at all to me. Mm. Um, not just because he was off the devices, but also because nature has a calming and soothing effect on us. It, it decreases cortisol in the body when we spend time in it. So, you know, these are real things that we just don't know a lot about yet. And it's not to make people paranoid about using devices. Mm. It's more to just be aware and to see if you can yourself, because this is for adults too. Mm. I have so many people coming into my practice asking for help with tech addiction. Uh, but if you can just choose to spend your time a little differently it can naturally um, you know, disengage you from the appendage of the smartphone. Yeah. Uh, if you choose to, so we have a rule in our house that my son has to at least get exercise every day. He has to go outside every day. Those are things that he has to do. I don't wanna be somebody, I'm not gonna be the, the police that is mm. checking how much time have you had on the mm. device. It's, it's not something that's gonna work. It's not a pleasant thing to do. Um, so it's more about getting your child and yourself engaged in non-screen activity, play some music. That's the other thing that my son does and, and get outside, um, just as a way to start to calm the nervous system. Our nervous systems are really taxed, um, you know, especially during this pandemic and here in the U S with our politics, it's been one thing after another. People are constantly exposed to another stressor, another stressor. And what do they do when they're stressed? They go to the smartphone mm. as a way to self-soothe unconsciously, but it 
without knowing that it's actually creating more stress in the body. Absolutely. And it is quite hard. And even again, even in Ireland, we're aware of what's going on in the US. And at times around the election, we were all glued to the televisions and to what the, you know was coming up. I must say that I've learned a few skills with my own phone and I wrote about it in my own book is that I used to put my phone on silent and leave it away from me after I finished work and that if anybody needed to contact me urgently they had my home number so that way it gave me an excuse well I better keep it just in case somebody needs me urgently I could leave my phone there and just say if anybody wants me that knows me particularly well meaning my family they could ring my home phone or they had my husband's number if they know me. Other than that, I don't need to hear the pings or the messages coming in because they were constant for a while until I set my boundaries and said, I am not available after 6 p.m. You know, Good for you. That's yeah. absolutely right. I mean, I tell people to start small because the whole thing can be overwhelming. Obviously, we are on our devices all the time, especially now we need them. Yeah. And uh and so one of the things I did was, you know, I actually was one of those people, I'm ashamed to say, that would take out my phone when I was in the car at a stoplight. <laughs> I, I found myself doing this and, and I kept saying to myself, that is insane. I'm not going to do that. Please mm. put your phone down, Meg. I would, I would inevitably do it unconsciously. So I had to put my bag in the back seat with my phone in it in order to break that habit. I wasn't taking it out while I was driving. It was at the stop stoplight, mm. but nonetheless, yeah. why? It's not necessary. Mm. And so it, I had to have it that much farther away from me to break that habit. And so you can start with something small like that um, just to intervene a little bit and it can make a world of difference. Absolutely, I definitely believe that. So I love, there's two other things I want to mention. I know we're nearly up with time. But on page 81 of your book, it's widen the lens. It's not about denying what's there or about positive thinking. It's about envisioning a realistic picture of how things may go better. And I thought that was very relevant, especially now, if we don't even take politics into it. But if we just think about the pandemic and within our own situations, when I'm working with people a lot and I work with a lot of groups, the, the talk is, well, is it ever going to get better? And I found myself speaking to somebody I met on a walk the other day across the road, you know, kind of going, well, I don't know when it's going to end. And I could hear myself repeating what everyone else was saying. And then I thought, you have to envision something else, Sharon. So when I saw this in your book, I just thought it was very powerful that we must envision a picture of how things may get better, even if we're not sure what that is, but to have the belief that it will get better. You know, for me, I believe our ancestors have come through so much, Meg, haven't they? And, you know, we're here as a result of them so that we can carry on and things will get better. And we have to try and work on that. And the other point was activate hope, push yourself into motivation, for a solution. I loved that, Meg. Mm. Yeah, people sometimes think hope is just sort of a, a, a concept or a wish or something mm. like that, but it, there's actually a formula to hope. Hope is really about envisioning a goal and creating steps that are realistic to reach that goal. 
You can't do that, however, if you don't think about the possible obstacles, the things that could get in the way of your reaching that goal. Because if you don't think about that, then you're kind of naively, you know, yes. <laughs> you know, thinking that you're just, you know, marching on towards your goal. Uh, so you really have to think about those obstacles and, and, and think, you know, again, mindfully about how you might get around those obstacles. Mm. Hope, as Jane Fonda said, and I, I wrote in the book, is activism. And I love that quote because it really is about taking action. Um, it's important to sit and be with your feelings. It's important to talk with one another about what we're experiencing, but eventually we need to take action. And that is empowering. And that is something that doesn't have to be, you know, some 20 hour a week volunteer job. You know, it could be a small donation you know, to an organization that's planting trees, I, you know, it, it could be so many different things, but activating hope is key. And widening the lens is, can help with that. Um, because when we're stressed, our vision gets narrow, literally. Mm. Um, and when we are feeling overwhelmed, our vision gets narrow in terms of what we're thinking about. All we can see is what's going wrong. Yeah. Uh, and so we really have to sit back and look at what's going right or what could go right in order to establish hope, establish those goals and uh, activate ourselves to move. Yes, very good, Meg. Meg, thank you so much. Um, it was so lovely to talk to you all the way in the US. It feels like we're just in one room and the other room here. It doesn't seem like we're that distant at all. Oh, I know. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. No. My ancestors were from Ireland, but I've actually never been there. It's on my is number one on my list of places to go once we can all freely travel again. Oh wow. Well, my mother um Actually, she looks for people's Irish roots as well. Now oh. she's a genealogist. She, you know, people contact her and say, I only know my great grandmother's name and she left to go to America on a ship. And I only know one name. And I think she's from the West of Ireland, you know? Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So Great. if you ever need any help tracing anybody, let there me know. There you go. Absolutely. There you go. So, Meg, your website, www megvandusen.com I'll put it up in the links as well under the podcast and 12 practices to tackle stress and strengthen attachments it is an amazing book Meg and for me because of the practical tools and techniques in it this is something that I recommend to people you know it's great as I said reading things and understanding it but then what do you do so I Absolutely. love the fact that you have this you know, the mindfulness, the meditation, the self-compassion, you know, the hope you're talking about widening the lens, you know, how to alleviate loneliness. And again, relationships are the key to our well-being. I absolutely believe that. But we have to start with that relationship with ourself, Meg. Isn't that right? You've got it right, Sharon. That's absolutely mm. right. And that's something that um, I do talk about at length. It's such an important one. Meg, thank you so much. And I wish you so much hope for a brighter future in the US with everything to come. We'll be watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for having me. And uh, yes, hopefully we can meet in person one day. Oh, yes. When you come and find your ancestors, Meg, you might have been right around the corner I'll, from I'll, me. I will call you up for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meg. Thank you. Thank you. 
And thank you to all our listeners. And I look forward to connecting you all again. For now, I want to thank Dr. Meg Van Dusen. And you can check out her book, Stressed in the USA, available on her website, www.megvandeusen.com. Thank you to everyone and stay well.